Welcome to the latest message in our Words for Life podcast, which highlights the teaching ministry of Liberty Heights Church. Today's message is the second message in a series titled Stronger, where the challenge to our church family is not to grow bigger as a church in 2024, but rather to grow stronger. In today's sermon, we will look at two critical next steps that every spirit-filled Christian should take. Join Pastor Chris Anderson for part one of a message titled, Everyone Taking Next Steps. She got out of the shower, her husband was still in bed. And so she, she said to him frustratedly, she said, when are you going to get up? When are you going to get ready for church? To which the husband replied, he's like, I'm not going today. And quite honestly, I'm not sure if I'm going to go back at all. He says, but if you can give me one good reason to get out of bed and, and to get ready for church today, I'll at least go, agree to go today. The wife replied, I can do one better than that. I'll give you two good reasons. Number one, you're 50 years old. Part of being a grown-up is doing what you should do whether you feel like it or not. And number two, you're the pastor, so get out of bed. <laughs> that was a live look in our house this morning. <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm just like you. This morning it was hard getting out of bed. This morning it was I wanted to stay under those, those covers. But unlike you, I have to preach today. Uh, but I am also uh, living, and as pastors, we live with the deep conviction that our church is only collectively as strong as the people who are com- uh, that are committed individually. The inspiration for the name of this series actually came from all the conversations that we as staff wrestle with, uh, not how we can grow the church bigger, but how we can grow stronger. Every week on our Facebook page, uh, you may have noticed that we actually um, post a, a quote from the sermon, and then in it we link to the sermon, and you can go watch it. You can listen to it on a, on a podcast. In fact, this will be a shameless plug. When you see that, and we know that you see it because Facebook tells us how many people actually see it, go ahead and hit that like button. It's not that hard. Just go like. And man, if it really spoke to you that day and God really used that in your life, hit the share button because when you do that, the algorithms of Facebook say that you have more power to extend the reach of the sermon than we do. So just, again, a shameless plug with how this is a Facebook congregation. Go ahead and like and share and just help spread or keep the, 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 the sermon alive throughout the week. But last week, when we posted that quote, this was the quote. The strength of the church corporately is directly connected to the spiritual efforts of people individually. And so that's the goal of the series, to challenge you to embrace the spiritual habits that cause us to grow stronger as a church. So last week we taught that you would be str- we would be stronger if everyone were pursuing the spirit-filled life. And now for the next two weeks, we want to teach uh, on a couple different habits, the habit of everyone taking a next step, but we want to look at four different next steps that we think every church member should be taking. And so this morning we're going to start out in Ephesians chapter 4. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I love hearing the rustling of pages. And we're also going to end our time in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And so you maybe want to bookmark that as well. But go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Because we think this is the foundational passage in all of the New Testament as to how church is to operate. And like any good builder, we want to start with the foundation because you can work as hard as you want to strengthen the church, uh, but all your work will be, all your efforts will be wasted if the foundation is poor to begin with. And so I'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 4, follow along as I read verses 11 through 16. And God gave the church apostles and he gave prophets and evangelists 
and shepherds and teachers. Then he gave them to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So for the next two weeks, we're going to look at these four foundational steps to this week, to next week. And the first foundational step is this, everyone gathering faithfully. Everyone gathering faithfully. It is not lost on me the irony. Last night I texted Pastor Brad and I said, Today we are teaching on, or tomorrow we are teaching on faithful church attendance. On a day it's going to be less than 10 degrees. And he says, Yes, we will be preaching to the choir tomorrow. And so, man, we are glad that you are here. We are glad that you are here to hear this. And so, even though you are already here, gathered faithfully, uh, listen to some of the foundational reasons why we do that. If you just get up and do it every week just because you think you're supposed to, then maybe you're missing the reason. And someday, 30 years later, you'll say, I'm done. I'm not going back. If we painted a picture of church attendance in America, it would be a pretty bleak picture. Uh, More churches closed in America last year than churches opened in America, despite all the aggressive church planning efforts. This past year and this coming year, we have and will send tens of thousands of dollars to an organization uh, within the Southern Baptist uh, Convention called the North American Mission Board. Um, They are, I believe, the greatest church planning uh, organization in the world, and despite their best efforts of planning tens of thousands of churches, more churches closed than opened. Ten years ago, the average uh, size church in America with regard to Sunday morning attendance was 130 people. Fast forward 10 years, and today it's 65 people. For the first time in eight decades that the Gallup poll has tracked American religious membership, more adults in America do not attend church than do attend church. We could give you statistic after statistic about declining church attendance, Which honestly makes us as a church even more grateful um, that despite this cultural trend, despite churches, especially larger churches, having uh, the difficulty of of recovering since COVID, we're still talking about that. Uh, Despite all of that, our uh, attendance grew by 7% last year. So we're doing better than most. But even for churches like ours, there is another trend that we as pastors find Uh, equally disturbing, if not more disturbing, and it's the reality that those who still attend church attend less frequently. 30 years ago, uh, the average church attender, to be called called a regular church attender, um, you attended church about three to three and a half times a month. I don't know how you attend church half a time a month, but you get the point right over the course of a year. Um, It was three and a half times a month. Uh, 10 years ago, that number had dropped to 1.4 times a month. And so whatever the statistics are, it looks like it's at least less than twice a month to be considered a regular attender. Let me give you some real statistics that apply even to our church. So uh, this past year... Um, at our largest campus, and so that gives us kind of the biggest uh, data set to work with. 80% of our attendance uh, comes from the original sending campus in Liberty Township. Uh, So we looked at our children. 
You have to understand the reality of children when they come to church. I can't tell that you're here necessarily. Until the day comes that we install facial recognition equipment, which I don't think will ever happen. That sounds a little creepy. We don't know that you're here unless on a particular Sunday morning uh, you're a senior adult that attends a Sunday school class and there's a roster. Or if you happen to give on that particular Sunday. Or if you drop your kids off. And so chances are this morning maybe you give online, so we don't know that you were here in the room uh, unless you have a child, because here's a fact about children. They can't get here on their own, right? So the only way they're here is if somebody brings them. So last year, starting at the beginning of the, the present school year, 71% of our kids, so three-quarters of all the children on our rosters, attended uh, children's church less than twice a month, less than 50% of the time. It's caused us to go back and revamp entirely how we do children's ministry. Uh, Shannon, my wife, who oversees all of uh, family ministries, has even launched into a new curriculum. We were working before in a uh, curriculum called the Gospel Project, where every week it would build on it. It would walk chronologically through the story of the gospel. And what we discovered was when the kids weren't there, uh, they came this week, and it was building on what was here last week, and they weren't here last week. And so we radically changed our approach and we uh, changed the entire curriculum system so that we could more effectively meet that need and more effectively disciple those children that are coming so much less often. Now, as a young pastor, if I had these stats, um, I would have resorted to guilt to address the trend, right? That's what young guys do. We think, man, we beat the sheep, right? And if we beat the sheep, they'll come to church. And that often works for about two or three weeks, but then after that, it's no longer effective. And as I've grown in age and hopefully wisdom, come to understand that the reason behind that trend of attending church less often is not because we haven't beat the sheep hard enough, but because there is a wrong belief driving the wrong behavior. How many times have you heard us say this? We do what we do because our heart wants what it wants, and our heart wants what it wants because it believes what it believes. In other words, the foundation of wrong behavior is not the lack of a good motivator, but because of wrong belief. And so here's the wrong belief that has led to the wrong behavior of not faithfully attending church. It's this. It's the belief that church is helpful, but not essential in my spiritual development. Man, as I was studying that this week, it just, it just smacked me. Okay, this, I've told you all the time, this stuff preaches to me as hard as it preaches at you. It's the belief that church is helpful, but not essential in my spiritual development. And I work for the church. Many of you have children or grandchildren that are involved in some level of sports, from youth soccer all the way up to travel ball. And could you imagine telling your coach, your family, or your, your child, telling your coach, Coach, we're only going to be there 50% of the time. Only 50% of the practice, only 50% of the games. You see, that's a crazy thought. And we too are not content with setting the bar of faithfulness less than 50%. We're appalled at the thought. Now, we love sports, but I don't think that sports should be in the same category as a, of essentialness as what Scripture places on the church. And so let's look at some biblical reasons that faithful attendance should be the norm and not the exception. Right from the text this morning, we see immediately in verse 12 that one of the reasons that we should attend church is because at the church we equip through pastoral teaching. Now, if we were to survey 10 different church members or everybody in the room this morning, there's a chance that we would receive 10 different answers on what they think the primary job of the pastor is. 
Uh, there's a famous research within, researcher within the evangelical world. His name is Tom Rainer. And several years ago, he did uh, some research, and uh, it was just these results were uh, kind of mind-boggling to me. He surveyed members about the role of their pastor, and 89% of the people of the church members that he um, polled or surveyed said that the role of the pastor was to meet the needs of the families in the church. When he surveyed the same pastors from the same churches, their response of what is the role of the pastor was to lead the church to reach the people who are not yet coming. Two completely different answers. Can you see why maybe there's some conflict in the church today? And some see the pastor as a CEO that is to provide organizational and administrative leadership. Some see the pastor as a paid chaplain that's just supposed to meet all the needs of everybody within the congregation to spend all his time on pastoral care. Some see the pastor as the resident theologian, but listen, Ephesians chapter 4 couldn't be any more clear about what the primary role of the pastor is. Look at verse 12. Look at it. What does it say? Why did God give us pastors and why did God give us uh, teachers within the church? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now listen, there are a lot of secondary ways that that can happen. There's a lot of secondary ways that a uh, pastoral team can, um, can equip the saints for the work of the ministry. But the primary way that that happens is through teaching. In the New Testament, uh, there's three different words that are used interchangeably for the office of pastor. There's a word for bishop, uh, pastor, or elder. They're all inter interchangeable terms for the same office. And in the New Testament, the only other office that... Uh, uh, God has ordained within the life of the church is that of a deacon. And if you were to go to uh, some of the epistles, 1 Timothy in particular, that talks about the qualifications between a deacon and a pastor, they're nearly the same qualifications, uh, nearly similar, except for the pastor, it says he is apt to teach. Uh, a pastor is skilled in the ministry of the word. He, he knows his Bible. He has the ability to communicate its truths effectively. Sometimes that's done interpersonally. Sometimes that's done in small groups and smaller settings. But the primary env uh, environment that we see in the New Testament and for 2,000 years of church history, and we've witnessed the primary environment is the weekly worship service. When we gather together corporately for worship. Now we can't say legalistically this is the only God-ordained place that this can happen. We think about those countries where there's such persecution they can't meet on a, on a regular basis. They can't meet together as a large group. But those are the exceptions, not the norm. And the normal pattern that we see both in Scripture and in church history is that the church comes together uh, to be taught. That's where pastoral teaching takes place. One of the things that sometimes people are surprised by is when we uh, share our conviction as pastors, we believe that the primary purpose is to equip saints. It's not to evangelize the lost. You know, Billy Graham, uh, in all of his brilliance and all the wonderful kingdom things that he did, that was not church. That was an evangelistic crusade. And God used it mightily, but in church, the, uh, the uh, opportunity that we have is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that they can then go out and be the evangelization arm of the church. Now, every week we invite lost people into a relationship with Jesus, but the main thing that we do that differs from an evangelistic crusade is that our goal, our role is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. 
And so if you ever wonder why we try to explain things as plainly as possible, it's not because we didn't attend seminary. It's not because we don't know the big words. It's because we're trying to make these truths as practical as possible. About a year ago, somebody said to me, they said, I don't think that my pastor is that good of a theologian. He's a wonderful communicator, but I'm not sure that he's a great theologian. And I said, why that? Why is that? Well, because he just speaks so plainly and simply. And I said, well, maybe that's the sign that he's a good theologian. The old uh, radio pastor, J. Vernon McGee, I can still hear his voice. If, you, if you've uh, ever listened to him on the radio, he's uh, gone on to be the Lord, uh, with the Lord years and years ago. But he used to say that the role of the pastor is to take the cookies and put them on the bottom shelf. And to make that easy for people to understand and for, to practically uh, apply these truths to our lives. And so we gather together weekly to equip you to be more like Christ. We do that through our teaching, we do that through corporate worship, and then we do that by, at the end by reminding you that, that our role as a church is to go and take the gospel out. That's why we say the Great Commission each and every week. And so you may be thinking this morning, well, I don't want to be legalistic, but, right, that's how that, that sentence always starts, uh, Pastor, I don't want to be legalistic, and then I say it for you, but, but how many times do you think that you know, we should attend church each month. Like, what is the, uh, if it used to be 3.4, should it be 3, should it be, like, what is that number? And we would answer that question with a question, how equipped do you want to be to live for Christ? How equipped do you want to be to live for Christ? There's a second belief that we want to embrace this morning regarding the uh, importance of faithfully gathering each week, and Pastor Brad touched briefly on this last week, and it's that corporate worship is a means of grace. We have talked about this ad nauseum. We have talked so often about these buckets of grace or means of grace or habits of grace. I like calling them fountains or spigots of grace. This is a stream of God's grace that is uh, present somewhere. And we have to make the effort to put ourselves under that stream of grace. Now, it's not more saving grace. Saving grace is a kind of a one and done. God has saved us, and he is going to keep us. But then there is empowering grace. And empowering grace allows us to live by the Spirit, exactly what we talked about last week. Romans 8, verse one, uh, 11 actually says that God uh, gives us the Spirit, and that Spirit brings life to our mortal bodies. And what that means is through the power of the Spirit that we can do spiritual things that we otherwise wouldn't have the power to do. And one of the ways that we feed the Holy Spirit is through the spiritual disciplines. And one of the spiritual disciplines is gathering together corporately to worship. Our book of the year this year is Praying Through the Bible. It's uh, by author and professor Donald Whitney. And Dr. Whitney is a professor at Southern Seminary. And just this week, uh, Pastor David from our Lebanon campus had an opportunity to visit Southern Seminary and actually sit as a guest in one of his lectures and actually got to talk to him about the fact that, hey, our church has used um, this little book. You may have heard of it, David said. It's called Praying Through the Bible. It's our book of the year. And it was a neat interaction. And um, it, it was fun to engage with him. And doc, uh, Dr. Whitney has said the following. He, he wrote this a few years back. He said, there is an element of worship and Christianity that cannot be experienced in private worship or by watching worship. You guys remember COVID when for that period of time we shut everything down and we watched worship. We watched somebody uh, play a guitar. Uh, we watched somebody sing. And listen, we did what we had to do and what we could do. And it was uh, good in the moment, but it was hard. Watching worship was hard because you're not as engaged in worship. He said, uh, Professor Whitney said, there are some graces and some blessings that God only gives in the meeting together 
with other believers. And so let's ask that question again. How faithful should I be in my attendance? And again, we would ask the question in response, how much empowering grace do you want in your life? Are you content to settle for only 50% of the empowering grace that's available to you each week simply by putting yourself under this means of grace, this spigot of grace called corporate worship? We literally could preach an entire message here, uh, but all I want to say, and then we'll move on, practically speaking, uh, corporate worship, I read this a while back, corporate worship is the conveyor belt that moves you into relationships and it moves you into serving. And relationships and serving are the two things that are essential in your quest to look more like Jesus. So when we pray that our church members would look more like Jesus, it's that they would be on this conveyor belt called corporate worship where they would be bringing themselves or moving themselves into relationships and into opportunities to serve. Again, we'll, uh, we'll move on from here because I am preaching to the choir this morning, so everyone uh, attends faithfully. And habit number two is everyone gives generously. Everyone gives generously. Uh, more than just one of you just said to yourself, I knew it. I knew that they were going to touch on giving. And so bear with me and don't check out quite yet because this is so much more than just money. In fact, giving generously entails living sacrificially. And so that's really what we want to talk about. Everyone living sacrificially for Jesus. I told you that we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And so go ahead and flip over to that now. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're not going to necessarily read through a set of verses. But we do want to highlight a few truths from this passage. And the first truth I want you to see in verses 6, 7, and 8 is that our deepest longing should be for heaven, not for earth. Paul said that his heart longed for heaven because outside of heaven, he realized his heart was never going to be fully satisfied. He lived with this holy restlessness on this side of eternity because he knew that nothing temporal would ever satisfy his longings. Look at verse 6. Paul says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body... We are away from the Lord, and then skip to verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage, but we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, you think through that thought for just a second. That's a crazy thing. What he's saying is, I would rather not be here. Here we are fighting, kicking, and screaming to stay here, and Paul's longing for uh, the next destination. He's longing for where he's headed and one of the reasons I think that we have a hard time living sacrificially is because we have been deceived into thinking that our hearts are going to be satisfied with temporal things. Confession, one of my unhealthy obsessions, is that I love Air Jordans. Air Jordans were the basketball shoe, in case you don't know, I've been living under a rock. Um, the shoe that Michael Jordan made famous, he wore his entire career, and they continue to produce them. In fact, I'll show my age a little bit. We're on uh, Air Jordan Model 38 right now. So for 38 years, they've been producing them. And I remember when the ones came out. Uh, I remember looking at them in the store. I remember drooling over them. Uh, in high school, I wanted a, Air, a pair of Air Jordans so badly I could taste them. But they were $75, which back in the mid-'80s was a lot of money. And it was not happening in my family. I was a pastor's kid. Um, it wasn't even a consideration, and so I wore a pair of Converse from 
uh, $25 pair of Converse from Meyer Thrifty Acres. But now 38 years later, uh, Nike has cast in, cashed in on that nostalgia of all the little boys like me. And so they continue to re-release these shoes over and over and over that now we can afford. And so I've begun over the years, the last 10 years, to obsess and dream about these shoes. And I can finally afford to buy them even though they're sometimes four or five or even 10 times more expensive than they were originally. But can I tell you, after nearly 40 years of dreaming about these shoes, and now with my own ability to own a growing collection of Air Jordans, they don't quite bring the satisfaction that I thought they would. Now, don't get me wrong, I still enjoy them, okay? I bought a new pair last night, literally. And so I still enjoy them, I still like having them. But um, listen, I, I share this silly example as a way of saying like, what's your Air Jordan? What is that lie that maybe you have bought into or fallen for that says, hey, uh, I got to have it. I, I, I need this. I, I'll do anything to get this. Only to find out that, man, it hasn't brought near as much satisfaction as I thought it would. Maybe for you it's not shoes. Maybe it's other type of clothing. Maybe it's cars. Maybe it's toys. Maybe it's grown-up toys. Like, grown-up toys are pretty cool. They're a lot more expensive. Maybe it's houses, maybe it's property. What is your Air Jordan? What is that thing that you have longed for, that you have wanted desperately to have? And maybe you're starting even to buy into the lie that when you get it, when you have it, it will bring satisfaction. Listen, our deepest longing should be for eternal things. It's not that we can't enjoy the good gifts that God has given us, but our longings and the things that are going to truly satisfy us are eternal things. The second truth I want to highlight real quickly from this text is verse 10 is that an eternal perspective fuels sacrificial living. Look at verse 10. Paul said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether for good or for evil. And so here's Paul. The reason he's sharing this verse is because he's living with this, this reality that one day he's going to give account for how he invested his life. Did he invest it in eternal things or did he waste it on the temporal? Now, I need to clarify this statement. So if you're listening, turn to your neighbor, say, wake up. Listen, when you do earthly activities in a way that glorify God, glorifies God, that's an eternal thing. Okay, you can do, uh, so take for instance, we have two business owners both in the same work, both in the same identical business. One can do it for the temporal, one can do it for the eternal. You see, one can do it for uh, the satisfaction of being a small business owner, uh, the satisfaction of, of caring for his family, the security that comes from uh, being your own boss and putting money away. Although maybe this would be all the reasons why you don't go into business for yourself, right? Uh, the joy of owning business, someone once told me, is not quite the joy that everybody thinks that it is. Uh, but you can have somebody uh, running their business like that, or you can have the person over here that leverages everything within their business to use it as a platform for Jesus. I have a friend that attends one of our other campuses. He's here frequently, Michael Weber. He used to own an HVAC business. He couldn't care less about HVAC, except that uh, by becoming an expert in the world of uh, air conditioning and heating uh, and cooling, he realized that he could use that as a platform. He could use the, the funds that it provided to, uh, to make the name of Jesus more famous. 
So the Bible never distinguishes between the sacred and the secular. It only makes a distinction between temporal and eternity. And so Paul said, listen, I want to use everything that I have and I want to point it towards heaven. And that included his time and that included his money. This is the next truth I want you to see uh, from this passage Verses 14 and 15, that love for Jesus keeps us living sacrificially. How do we live sacrificially? Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. So how did Paul live so sacrificially? The answer is right there in verse 14. Through the love of Christ that controls us. And he says that those that have been changed by his love should no longer live for themselves. In other words, we live for Jesus. We live for others. We live sacrificially for the sake of Christ. One of the ways that this belief will show up in our behavior is through a generous lifestyle. There's two habits that overflow from a heart of sacrificial living. And we'll kind of end here. The first one is the dreaded treasure. Habit number one. Uh, that overflows out of a life uh, that's lived sacrificially is giving of our treasure. So let me say right from, the, the, right from the outset that our desire is not to have a giving record every year. Uh, our desire is not to accumulate as much as we can, although we did. Uh, this past year, I just got the numbers. Uh, $3,128,000 was the final count for our 2023 offering. It was a record that blew everything else out of the uh, water in a year uh, with some of the highest inf- uh, inflation in decades. Um, the consumer price index was going out of control. Um, we all felt the squeeze in our own personal life. You go to the grocery store. My wife uh, always keeps me up to date on some of the commodities that, that we buy and how they're, they're double, triple in price. And even in the midst of all that, God's people gave crazy generously. Now, they, they, you, we, we all gave towards the end of the year. We were a little nervous going to the end of the year. Um, in the last week of the year, uh, we received $200,000 in gifts in the last week. The first week of the year, somebody uh, gave us part one of a living will. Uh, they said, we want to see this money spent while we're still alive. And I had the pleasure uh, last Tuesday or Wednesday to go and deposit a $100,000 check in the bank. And so this morning, uh, I, I, I tell you from the bottom of our heart, our, our, our goal is not to achieve those record numbers. Our, our goal is to celebrate it when it happens. But that's not the goal here. Now, yes, we have budgets. Yes, we have uh, uh, goals because we are commitments that we've said in order to most effectively uh, make disciples, we think these are the commitments we need to make. And so we have to track against those commitments. But that's not the goal. The goal is to live generously. Our goal for you, we say this all the time, it's not something that we want from you, it's something that we want for you. We want every person that attends Liberty Heights Church to, to live a life of generosity. A couple years ago, we developed this, um, this graphic called the Gen- Generosity Journey. I think we have, to put it on, uh, have it to put on the screen here. In the Generosity Journey, you might not be able to read the bottom of that, but there's five different blocks. The first block is a non-giver, someone that comes each week, and we wouldn't know that you're here uh, because you've never given Um, The next block is an occasional giver. This is somebody that if they're here, they might give. But if uh, the week that they're not here, um, they just have a little extra money in their pockets. The next box is a consistent giver. 
if you're in those first two boxes, our, our desire for you, our prayerful desire for you, is that you would move and become a consistent giver. One of the greatest tools to help this um, really in the history of the church is online giving that became popular in the last decade. And now you can, uh, ahead of time, you can say, this is how I'm going to determine where my money is going to go this year, and this is how I'm going to do it on this basis, on this regular schedule. It, what's, it's what allows us on a Sunday like this when um, attendance across the board is going to be pretty low today, but the offering doesn't have to take a huge dive because people are giving online. In fact, more people give online now than they give even in the offering plate, and that's because we are learning as a church to become consistent givers. If you're a consistent giver, our goal then is to move you into the fourth box, which is a, a tither. A tithe is an Old Testament principle. It was an Old Testament mandate that has now kind of uh, come along as a principle into the New Testament. It's no longer a mandate, uh, but it was a 10% was the mandate in the Old Testament. God's saying, I've blessed you, and now your role is to take 10% and invest it back into the, the work of the Lord. And then finally, once you have grown to be a, a tither, uh, this is where my wife and I, God has blessed us so incredibly, and we've been able to give 10%, 11%, 13%. Our goal this year is to grow into 14 or 15%. I have one more year of tuition, and, and then we hope to explode and become extravagant givers even at that point. And so wherever you are on that continuum, our goal for you, our hope for you, our desire for you is that you would grow in your generosity from one step to the next. Now listen, even unchurched people know that churches teach about tithing, that churches teach about giving. And so instead of spending a lot of time here today, again, I'm preaching to the choir. Um, so let me talk about some reasons why people don't give. And so I, th I think I've said this before, that we do what we do because we want what we want because our hearts believe what they believe. And so what are some wrong beliefs not sure what just happened. What are some wrong beliefs uh, as to why we don't give? And the first wrong belief is this. I, I, not God, am the owner of all my money and possessions. It's all mine. Now listen, we no longer live under the law. We no longer live under that 10% mandate. In fact, the Bible says that we're not to give compulsively. We're not, to, we're not gonna, uh, supposed to feel guilted into giving. And so if you don't want to give... As a pastor, I don't know if you've ever heard this, then stop giving. Because the Lord's not honoring that gift to begin with. But the spiritually mature person has this attitude that says, Lord, it's all yours to begin with. How much do you want me to keep? Listen, spiritually mature people do not quibble and argue over percentages because they live a life of total abandonment to Jesus. It's so funny when I engage people about is the, is the New Testament, is the mandate a tithe, what's the, you know, what's the proper percentage, is it this, is it that. I'm always astounded that uh, those that live in that extravagant giver category, they haven't thought about percentages in a long, long time because they have a total abandonment to Jesus. Second wrong belief, and we're going to have to uh, wrap this up, my money, not God, is my source of security. And so to take refuge in anything other than Jesus for our identity, for our security, is idolatry. Don't have time to expound much more than that. The third wrong belief is that we live with a scarcity mindset. Uh, we refuse to give because we're afraid what that means. Like, I might not have the ability uh, to, to uh, meet my needs. Uh, to the, the obligations that I have will not be met. 
And when we live in that wrong belief, when we operate in that wrong belief and our behavior then flows out of that wrong belief, uh, we either believe that God is short on resources or that God doesn't really care. Neither of which are true. The Bible says my father owns a, uh, the cattle on a thousand hills. The Bible says that the apostle James, the brother of Jesus, says that my father is the giver of good gifts. And he loves to bless his children. And so really that's all we have to say this morning about giving. Again, on the heels of a record giving year, there are many, many people in this room uh, that give generously of their treasures. But listen, when we as pastors dream about our church getting stronger in the area of generosity, we don't sit around and dream about people growing in the area of giving of their treasures. We dream about people growing in the area of giving of their time. And so that's the second habit that overflows out of uh, a sacrificial life is the giving of our time. About a year and a half ago, we've talked about this quite extensively. We walked through a pretty extensive uh, consultation process uh, with an outside group. We just felt like we were stuck as a church. We kind of plateaued. Uh, we didn't know where we were headed. We didn't know how to fix it. We were just stuck. And so we uh, worked with a group called the Unstuck Group. And uh, it was a pretty invasive uh, process. They came in and explored everything. We gave them miles of reports and data. And they came in and uh, sat in our services. And uh, we spent a ton of time together. One of the biggest takeaways um, that they gave us that we couldn't argue with is that we do not have a healthy volunteer culture. That as a church, we need to do a better job of handing off ministry to volunteers uh, that the percent of people in our congregation needs to grow who are serving. We have discovered that other like-minded churches that live in what are generally thought of, a, of an affluent area. We live in an affluent, if you look at the numbers, the raw data, we live in an affluent area of Cincinnati. And it's not unusual for people to say, listen, I value my time more than my money, and so I'll write you a check. A couple years ago, we were trying to gather a group together to put a roof on our Middletown campus, and somebody said, listen, I can't be there, I can't commit to being there at any point over the course of the next month, but I will write a check for the whole thing. Now, we took their check, don't get me wrong, <laughs> and we cashed it, and we felt good about it. But I think it's just a, an example of how we value our, we've come to value our time more than our money. You know, at conversion and when we come to Christ, that at that point, the Holy Spirit gives us a gift mix. Every person's unique. Uh, some of the gifts are the same, but it gives different proportion and different uh, gifting, gift mixes, we call it, to different people. And the purpose of that gift is not so you can build a platform. It's not so you can build a brand. It's with the purpose of serving the church. Let me rattle off a couple verses real quick and we'll be done. 1 Peter 4.10 says that we've all received this gift, therefore minister to one another as good stewards of that gift. Romans chapter 12 says that we are many members of one body. We don't all have the same function. We don't all have the same gift mix. But verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given us, let us use those gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7, a diversity of gifts, same spirit. Diversity of ministries, diversity of ways that we can serve, but the same Lord. It's the same God that works in all of us, but the manifestation of the Spirit, verse 7, is given each to us differently for the profit of all. And so if we go back to our base text this morning in Ephesians chapter 4, 
Let me just wrap up this morning by reading you verse 16 again. Apostle Paul said, From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Church, a heart that is set on sacrificial living will play out practically in generous giving. Giving of our treasure, giving of our time. And so as we end this morning, I just want to ask you these questions. If everyone in the church was serving as faithfully as you, would the church be stronger or weaker? If everyone in the church was giving of their time and treasure as generously as you, would the church be stronger or weaker? And if you're feeling just a little bit convicted, as I have been, that's a good thing. Because that means that the Holy Spirit's working inside of you. And so church, let's just wrestle with those questions for just a minute. The quietness of our seats, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads this morning. First and foremost, if you're here this morning and you have yet to profess Christ, you have yet to claim Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, then you can't even do these things. And if you do, they're on your own strength. And over time, you're going to run out of the discipline to continue to do them. It's the Holy Spirit that gives life to this mortal body that allows me to do this. And the Bible says that you can have that Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is available to you if you do two simple things, and it's to repent and to believe. It's to believe the gospel message that Jesus is who he said he was, that he was the perfect Lamb of God, lived a sinless life, came and shed his blood for you in your place, took the death that you deserve. So do you believe the gospel story? And if you do, have you repented of your sins? To repent of your sins means to confess them, to recognize them, and to turn and walk in a new direction. The Bible says that when you do that, you become a new creation in Christ. And now the Spirit comes to live within you, and you have the ability to do the very things that we've talked about today. And God, I pray for those in the room this morning that perhaps are outside of a relationship with you. I pray that today would be the day that they would uh, hear your voice calling them, that they would respond, that you would take their heart of stone and that you would turn it to a heart of flesh as you promised that only you can do, that they would respond to the gospel message today. And then God, we trust that you will do what you have said you will do and that's to give us the Holy Spirit, to empower us, to bring life to our bodies, to allow us to do these things spiritually that we otherwise couldn't do. God, I thank you for a room full of people that are living generously. I thank you for a room full of people that are gathering faithfully. And God, I pray that the people in this room would serve as an example to the rest of the church of what it looks like to live with a heart that's sold out for Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for the opportunity we've had this morning to look into your word, to worship. And I pray that you would give us the strength to respond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.